All right, hello and welcome everyone to this, the inaugural episode of By the Numbers with myself, James Carlson. And everyone is familiar with Alex McNabb. How are you doing, Alex? Oh, I'm, I'm doing good. I, I thought we were going to call this evidence-based. <laughs> evidence-based. No, I uh, <laughs> I did some opinion polling to get the said that was cringe. Yes, I was told it was a meme title. Um but I think I think we'll do fine with by the numbers. I'm excited to have you co-hosting. So a little bit of background for everyone real quick. Alex and I have talked for a while now. We used to talk on Telegram. Hell, there was a point that we were talking daily. We just shoot graphs and data and papers at each other, sort of building to these evidence-based conclusions on things. So when Tony approached me about doing a, a sort of a data-heavy show for the network, this just seemed like a natural pairing. That's actually the one that happened was Mike was going to be the co-host, but Mike is extremely lazy. He was like, I don't want to do another show. Alex, can you do that show? You don't do anything. <laughs> Alex, you don't do anything. Why don't you do a show? I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> That's hilarious because uh, it was. Uh, I was told that you were very interested in being the co-host. That's actually, that's actually what happened. That's actually. What happened. I, I figured. I figured. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, I'm I'm very excited about it, and we have a great topic for the first show. We're going to start pulling apart the narrative that social media is a revolutionary force. And you know, red pilling people on social media is how you make political change. We see this narrative all over the place in our own circles, sort of normal political circles as well. So I'm pretty excited to get into all the data we've collected on this, Alex. Yeah, well, I think it's a very self-serving narrative. I, I think that you end up qualifying it using the metrics inherent to the medium itself. So you look at uh, retweets, number of retweets, uh, number of impressions, like number of likes you get on post, and then you confuse that with actually accomplishing anything. You, you see a video go viral, and it's like, wow, that must have really done something. It must have made a difference. Ah, uh, yes. The, uh, I forget yeah. who said it. There, I forget which scholar said it, but they call it, called it the illusion of engagement. In fact, I think it was Kishore Mubani, a former diplomat out of Singapore. He was talking about social media in the context of, you know, governments engaging with publics on social media. And he said that governments often think that the number of views and likes means the population got the message, but really it's just sort of an illusion of engagement. And he doesn't think it actually, you know, builds any sort of concrete foundation for communication. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you will actually see that earnestly discussed in marketing because they start to look into these things and conclude that, uh, a, a lot of the so-called engagement is not really driving people to their brands. They're not getting lift, I think is the term. Do I have that right? Is it lift? Because there's uh, there's the, the, the idea that you want to bring in new customers. You don't want to just keep barraging people that are already your customers with the same advertisement over and over again. You want to reach out to people who haven't seen the product before and bring them in the fold, which is anybody who's ever been on the internet will tell you, for the most part, Everybody's seen this, right? You go, you buy a product, and you get an ad for the product that you just bought. And it's like, well, somebody wasted their advertising budget on this particular campaign. So I, I have the thing. I don't need you to tell them to buy it again. Oh, yeah. Hell, now I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I started noticing I would Google things or Bing something and then open Amazon, and Amazon would suggest something I just Googled. Or yeah. Facebook would give me advertisements of something I just Googled. But I've never bought anything that they suggested to me. And I, in fact, I find it really annoying. And I, right. I have to believe, and the data shows, that people feel the same way about political takes. At least to the extent that you get ghettoized and it doesn't lead to any sort of action. Right. Like if I, if I consume some material related to black crime, and then I find another article about black crime and race realism, whatever. Okay, well, I'm already there, right? I'm already on board. So what? consuming another 20 articles or seeing more posts about it isn't really necessary anymore. Like I already accept these premises. I don't need to be propagandized any further in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in, uh, in fact I'll bring up one of our studies right now. We have the... Uh, Social Media and Activist Toolkit, which was a paper written by Humans and York. By the way, the links for everything should be in the description of the show. I'm sending them all to Borzoi, who, who edits the show. And they use this term, 
slacktivism, and they mention in the conclusion of the paper that new platforms, and in my mind, I started to think of new platforms that people in our circles use. Oh my yeah. God, I know exactly the paragraph. And yeah, yeah. The same thing I was reading. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Gab, Odyssey, BitChute, which by the way, great platforms when people put videos out on them. Of course, I watch the videos of people when they put them out, they're informative videos, but they're still ghettos, right? There's still these niche platforms that people who already believe these things are funneled into, and it, it creates this class of people which actually humans in York classified in the article as the slacktivist, you know, people who just consume content, but they're not doing revolutionary political activity. Yeah, you should actually just read that paragraph because it's really good. Well, here, first, activists can exert their power as consumers by jumping to new social media platforms in mass. Over time, this line of reasoning goes, the market provides applications with the securing functionality that activists require. The downside of this approach is the platforms optimized for activists may be so niche that it is more difficult to broadcast their concerns widely and mobilize networks of casual sympathizers. That's the paragraph. Yes, yes. Cool. And I Thanks. I immediately started thinking of... It's like Telegram. Hmm. Yeah, Telegram is a good one. Uh, uh, I, you know, Gab, just sort of all of the, <laughs> all of these platforms that I see. Twitter now, I mean, Twitter under Elon Musk is the same way, right? Everyone, everyone is so happy that it's slightly less censoring of sort of the cat turds of the world. Right, right. That it's, that it's created a funnel for people and they think that just tweeting is now accomplishing something right but what it really is accomplishing is creating a forum for political junkies to sit around and be political junkies together and uh, it's very much like a sports fandom yes it reminds me of the it reminds me of the early fa uh, facebook groups which were ending sort of at the time i was really getting into this and i was never a part of them but i know you were and i remember looking at them and thinking man they just post the same shit all day and comment on it like this can't be yeah. this is, can't be productive well the the other thing that we would do is fight so there's, <laughs> there, there are two things you could argue and you could post articles and you could shit post uh, there was very little productive going on in those days i can tell you that well you know i, I when i think about white papers and everything i do with white papers I personally am way more encouraged by it. Now, I, I love everyone who follows us on Telegram. Don't take this the wrong way, Telegram fans. But I love when I write an article for the Substack that has proposals and solutions because the articles are much longer. And people actually interact with that article in a meaningful way. I can see that they've shared. They, people often share them in the form of email to other people. You know, they're sharing solutions around, which I think is still better than just arguing about Elon Musk on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But, and you, you get deeper engagement with that because it's long form. People are having to actually use their brains. So you, you attract a different audience of people that are actually capable of dedicating time and energy to digesting that material and then thinking hard about it. Yes, absolutely. And in, in your building networks, this is the other thing in the Human New York study where they mentioned it was very brief in, in the second or third page how they mentioned that, you know, and actually there was a few piece I sent you that was the role of social media in the Arab uprisings that also mentioned this with a report from the Global Attitudes Project, which was that, you know, sort of at most what social media does, can do, I should say, is create a network for people who become core activists uh, people who actually go out and start something like the njp like patriotic alternative right and those things metamorphose into something that is no longer based on social media that's the other key thing particularly i know that with uh uh the uk group you just mentioned patriotic alternative they do a lot of uh leafleting so they will be in a neighborhood and distribute pamphlets leaflets things like that which is has its advantages because then you're actually getting your message and your membership out of people that are in a community near you geographically, which is one of the problems I guess we'll have to discuss here is that uh, a lot of a lot of times in social media you are broadcasting globally or you're, you're kind of using the megaphone, I think is what one of these papers was discussing it as, using a megaphone approach, which isn't ne necessarily good for recruitment. 
Like if if you convince I don't know somebody in some Zimbabwe that your position is morally correct, that doesn't really help you in the United States. Absolutely. In fact, I think what you're referencing is again this Pew page they cited a study which was uh, Egyptians embrace revolt. Mm-hmm. And that study mentions how when they traced the usage in clicks of links, specifically bit.ly links, which are these shortened links social media platforms use, 84% of the people who were looking at these were outside of the region of concern. So mm-hmm. what you were doing is you're broadcasting you're broadcasting this news, but you're just informing people who don't live in the immediate area. You're not mobilizing, you know, the local population. And I think the other thing, and this is like a bit more of the postmodernist, like armchair position here, like the amateur philosopher position is too. You've got people sort of trained to read about these sorts of things. And maybe, maybe they do become emotionally engaged with it, but nothing happens. Like how many times have you ever heard a story, read an article, seen a campaign and, and been moved by it and then done nothing. And then you read another story. Well, I experienced this firsthand when I worked uh, with the Bernie Sanders campaign in in 2015 and 2016. It was an extremely young campaign. Yeah, I was, hell, I was 16 at the time, literally. There were all these people who were so interested. Social media engagement was so huge. The polling numbers were massive. Mm -hmm. But then you would get critical states, particularly in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, in, in the primaries, where if the youth vote had turned out, Bernie Sanders would have won the nomination, but people just stayed home in these in these states, even though they were incredibly engaged on social media. It didn't translate into an activist class in so many of these instances. Right, right, and especially when you consider the the makeup of those regions. Like, look at your opposition; it's it's basically boomers, it's old people for the most part. It would be, and they're not really doing a whole lot of grassroots organizing, other than really stupid stuff involving Trump signs and throwing trump christmas so yeah if if it wouldn't take that much to compete with that would not take a whole lot to upset that that balance if you really wanted to but these people they're they're not engaged in such a way that translates into real world activity they just kind of passively engage it's 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 almost like a fake version of interaction you know because you you share the article you kick you click the like button you know maybe you leave a comment and that becomes like a surrogate version of actually doing something. It's a substitute. Exactly. And, but we do know what does motivate people to get out in the streets. We have uh, the sort of seminal study for the for this police for this uh, episode, which is explaining the intensity of the Arab Spring by Christy. Holy crap, that's a name. Chong. I should have practiced this one. Chong Hyun and Ethan J. Hollander. And they broke down in a, in a logical regression. They broke down what does actually motivate people to the streets. And it's sort of meat and potato stuff. Corruption, inflation, you know, uh, lowering standards of living. It's not social media. It's, it's, not thing, it's not even income inequality. I thought it was very interesting. They listed a lot of things that they were looking into that they personally thought would have had a bearing on the situation. And then these assumptions were completely upended by the actual data. Yes, that was really neat in their conclusion, how they mentioned they hoped that social media and Facebook would be this driving factor behind, in this case, the Arab Spring. But they couldn't they couldn't find any evidence. And I just think that lends even more credence to the study. Here's some of the things they're looking to likely suspects is the subheading possible causes of Arab unrest. Corruption is one. Ethno religious. Uh, heterogeneity, uh, population pressure, which now when they say population pressure, they're kind of talking about the median age of your population is the assumption would be <clears throat> the younger population is probably going to be more likely to have unrest, uh, unemployment, poverty, inflation, income inequality, which we'll come back to that one, uh, internet, cell phone, and social media access, of course, kind of like the central focus of the study itself. Indeed, and it was it was just fascinating looking. I'm now looking at the the table that they demonstrated, which for everyone who pulls up the PDF is on page 39 or page 14 of the PDF. Ethno-religious homogeneity, 
almost no contribution, which is mm-hmm. remarkable to think about when we exist in the, the politics that we do, right? Yeah. Population pressure, almost no contribution. Unemployment practically didn't matter. GDP per capita practically didn't matter. Now, inflation mattered immensely. It was a 0.3 on their scale. That's pretty significant, but that's only half as much as perceived corruption, which was by far the biggest factor. Yeah, yeah. The thing that I think we both noticed was really interesting is income inequality is something that everybody would think would matter. Clearly, the authors thought it would matter, and it didn't didn't seem to have much of an impact. Inflation, yes, but income inequality, no. And I know we talked prior to the show about how likely what's going on is if you grow up with uh, haves and have-nots and rich and poor, you just kind of accept that as a fact on the ground. It's not motivating you to change your behavior or do something. You just accept it. Right. I, I sort of use the analogy that if you walk out of your hut past the rich guy's house, you might, you know, you might kind of glare at it like, oh, that guy has more than me, but it's not a politically motivating factor. However, if you live under a, a corrupt regime or police force and the police beat you with the baton, but not the rich guy down the street, that yeah. matters significantly more than the size of his house and your house. Yeah. Or if you can pay off the police and he gets special treatment, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. That's an even better example. He can... It matters when he can afford to pay to avoid the beating. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, we're getting we're getting back to the uh, hearkening back to the Soviet era with that one. And then of course, the inflation ties right into that argument, right? Because what is inflation really? And we're all dealing with it now. Inflation is the erosion of your standard of living. So, you know, if if you grow up poor and you're sort of used to that situation, it just is what it is. But then. The value of your money starts going down and you can't even afford that lifestyle that you've known. That starts to make you angry. Then you start to look for people to blame. Yeah, I saw another, I have to find this other article, but there was a, another study. I think this was some sort of AI regression analysis or something, but they were looking into food price inflation in particular. Seems to really, really kick off a little bit of social unrest, I think for obvious reasons, because generally if an animal is hungry, they start to behave a little differently. Or you're stressed about finding your next meal. That's the one that I thought about. You know, in Europe right now, you look at the polling and in America, actually, I was sharing some polling with Stryker a couple of weeks ago. The You can look at the food price index shooting up in both America and Europe and the approval for the war in Ukraine tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. It's, it's dropped by like 30% in the U.S. Right. And the, the important thing to keep in mind when discussing that is you don't need to use Facebook or Twitter or Telegram to tell people about that. They go to the grocery store. They see it firsthand. None of this requires social media. Like this this type of, you call it maybe radicalization, even it's a really mild form of radicalization. It doesn't require anyone to tell you stories about the situation geopolitically or or really tell you much anything. You can see it with your own eyes. You you, you feel it in your wallet. <laughs> it doesn't require any kind of engagement with social media or to have to listen to a podcast or read an email. Exactly. In fact, I was I was talking to a friend about this just before we came on the show about food price inflation, and he said uh, he was talking about how he went on social media and he was reading all these articles about how companies like Tyson and stuff are jacking up artificially jacking up the prices of their food which is true right that's absolutely true they are manipulating the market but that's a post hoc justification for something that you're upset with from the grocery store it's not something you looked into first and then became upset over the price yeah. of the food yeah the inner the internet just gave you a post hoc justification yeah and and oftentimes i i find that what it it does is it tries to take energy away from you maybe getting angry enough to do something it's there to soothe you and that, that was actually one of the things that came out of some of this other research here was that generally if you've got a situation of social unrest developing contrary to what people might believe the internet and social media in particular seems to serve more as a break sometimes than it does an accelerant because you've got interested parties that already have their people position to try to control these online narratives 
and break up communities that could be potentially emerging to try to form some kind of real life dissident or activist movement. Yes, actually, I uh, I had a thought about this earlier. I remembered that in Egypt, it, as it's currently constituted under Al Sisi, who's he rose to power in the military coup that overthrew Morsi, they have these internet and TV personalities who work for the state. They're they're picked mm-hmm. by Morsi, but they go on Telegram, they go on Facebook, they go on you know they live stream on Instagram, and they're on the news, and they're emotive. They're angry. They're screaming at the other guy on the show. They're you know calling people names and throwing shit like it's like memory TV, but real. And mm-hmm. this stuff has totally pacified the Egyptian population completely because they yeah. can go on they can go on Instagram and they can see two guys chucking shoes at each other while <laughs> arguing about you know <laughs> water control on the Nile River. I don't know what the hell they're arguing about. <laughs> And that completely pacifies people. They feel like they're involved in a real conversation. They feel like they've been involved in a real confrontation. But all you've done is watch an Instagram live stream while, you know, the the, the price of food in Egypt continues to soar. And you can't as hell. I'm going to throw my shoot you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Impassioned Arab argumentation. I think it's just it's you got to remember that governments have got far more resources than any kind of dissident movement ever could dream of. And they can just, they can pay people to do this. They can pay people to sit on the internet all day long, and jam your narratives. They can they control your comment section. They can cause problems for you. They can dox you, get you arrested. That kind. They have tons of resources to do that. So when you go into those spaces, those spaces are already effectively controlled by the enemy. You're in their territory. It's basically their playground. So it's actually a very dangerous place to be. It's extremely dangerous if you're dissident and you're in that space. It's not just a, I think people want like a free lunch, right? Like they want an easy way to do some kind of activism, some kind of dissidency. And it just doesn't exist. What looks like it's too good to be true is too good to be true. Yes, but Alex, I can spam racial crime statistics on Twitter and Elon Musk will post an exclamation point. That's progress. (laughs) It's surely, surely this is significant. I mean, (laughs) interesting. I've done something, you know, <laughs> monitoring the situation now. Yes. Yeah. And it, it's fascinating. You brought up sort of the resources of the state. I was thinking about this when I was writing a recent piece for white papers. It's way more cost heavy on the state. Now, I'm not saying it's it's like a true burden, but if you're going to compare the two, it's way more time and cost intensive on the state to try to do something like infiltrate a political organization and make a case against them, especially if they're just, you know, having a rally or sitting around a table. That is way more in time and cost intensive than it is to have a room full of people, you know, conjuring up narratives on social media. Right. And the thing is, they can just subcontract that kind of social media stuff and just completely and they skip do. the legal process. Because that's Facebook, the, the yeah. Facebook has huge centers of people who not only do they moderate content. But they will post disclaimers and counter narratives. BBC, in fact, there was that thing going around just the other day. The BBC in Britain is setting up AI, like fake AI social media accounts to push quote unquote truthful narratives. And these accounts are already accruing hundreds of thousands of followers. Yeah, I mean, it's just from. Like the, the traditional policing model is much more intensive on your personnel. Legally, it's harder because then you, you've got to go convince a judge that you should get uh, some sort of uh, investigation going on someone and, and get them get their, them to approve and sign off on things. You've got to get people further up the chain to sign off on stuff. It's much, much easier to just take some money and give that to a subcontractor and let them go on there and do all the work for you. And then if things get spicy enough then you can bring in in the the hard power and your agents and you bring it you bring in the hard power closest to the heart of it i mean the the real problem with sort of trying to police real world political activity is that you can't be sure that the the state or local authority will actually give that much of a crap yeah whereas if it's on the internet you can just bring in the fbi after you've (laughs) you've sufficiently entrapped someone yeah, yeah, because uh, that, was, that was one of the things I was kind of thinking about is, is if you have local corruption, and I'm, I'm spitballing here, but it's possible that a 
dissident organization in the area can find it easier to survive because the local police are corrupt and they don't care you can buy them off or maybe they're just not interested in general in looking into a political operation because they're too busy selling drugs or something well you know the the nsd i'll, I'll go right to the nsdap or this also applies to to mosley in britain they had wonderful I think the correct term is sort of a corrupt relationship with police in certain local areas mm -hmm. where the police would say, I, you know, you do whatever you want over there in that field. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take the, <laughs> I'm going to take, 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 take this five pounds you just gave me, and, you know, <laughs> go yeah, buy some salted pork. Yeah, <laughs> look the other way, especially, especially if you've got high inflation and people are living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, police officers aren't paid that much. Potentially find a situation where you are buying them off. Oh yeah, there was a funny video yesterday posted about uh, some of these protesters in Ireland protesting uh, all the resettlement of refugees offered to buy Chinese food for the Garda, and the guy, the guy mentioned how they thought about it for a minute. And like, mm -hmm. You know, those I guarantee you those those police don't want to be sitting there. But this yeah. is a function of corruption. Ireland is experiencing inflation. These are real world issues. The police are assigned to these people were like sitting in a group out in the open. The police were assigned to deal with a real world problem. These weren't people who were just on social media posting, oh, these refugees are terrible. Right. Yeah, they're not live streaming it like to like for Facebook likes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to. Uh, what is that on Instagram where you tap it and it generates a bunch of hearts or whatever that might. Be <laughs> but the point is, point being that that's. That's fake engagement, whereas corruption and inflation are real factors that you have to actually deal with in the real world. It's not an abstract. And I think this sort of you brought up postmodernism. Social media allows people to turn everything into an abstraction. Mm -hmm. And everyone is constantly dealing in abstractions, whereas when you're actually in the real world dealing with something, or you're 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 creating a core group of activists, right? So NJP arose, frankly, from a lot of the relationships that were made online. But that's because you you got a core group of activists who did something in the real world, which is now having an effect. I always think about Waukesha, where the NJP protested and it forced the two state senators of completely different political parties to write a response. It forced the state to address the issue. If it was just right. internet based, if they if no one showed up to the town, that wouldn't have happened. I, I think there is a bit of an opportunity there as well, because uh, the, the side effect, of course, of turning everybody into a political junkie or a slacktivist is that if your organization does actually go out in the street and do something, politicians are going to think that that is more significant because no one else is doing anything right. Like if if you're banging on some politician's door, they're not they're not necessarily used to having that happen to them. Certainly, if it's a Republican, they're not used to their constituents actually loudly demanding anything out of them. So if you do that, now you are the squeaky wheel. Well, that's why January sixth frightened people so much. Um, I always remember the picture of the congresswoman. She was a Jewish congresswoman, lying like the the observation deck, and she's like lying behind the wall, sobbing. She's so, af so afraid. This I laugh every time I see this image. It's so she's just sobbing and crying. And there's a, another congressman, and I think it was a Republican, who's like trying to console her. And I remember sitting there, and I remember, <laughs> I remember thinking, "You bitch, you are you are upset because all of the people who who you have never taken seriously." Because they were just this abstract group of, uh, you know, crazy heartlanders way over yonder have actually come in, you know, the January 6th crowd, they didn't do anything, right? They stood around, they took pictures, they sat in the chairs like they didn't, they didn't do anything significant. But that woman thought those people were coming to hold her accountable in the real world, and she was afraid. Right. Right, because that's supposed to be a depoliticized group that just doesn't do that kind of thing. That's the whole point of conservatism is that... Right, they, they post QAnon yeah. on Facebook. That's to, what they're uh, supposed to do. Lay down and take it. And, exactly. And then, <laughs> and then they show up to your door. 
Well, what's like what's one of the favorite things the conservatives have always like to say, which is you know, all these protesters. Imagine imagine not having a job. Imagine oh, you have yeah. the free time to do a protest. Yeah. Well, any organization, we we can look at how they respond to to groups of young men who all have the same pair of pants. They act like it. They act like there must have been seven months of committee meetings and you know forty consultations to get there. They think organization is just beyond the yeah. capacity of normal people. So we're getting off the topic a little bit here. Uh, anyway, so back to the the core study we were talking about. Uh, explaining the intensity of the Arab Spring, because they started to look into the social media aspects and concluded it really just didn't seem to have much of an impact. I know they were looking at uh, cell phone usage, uh, usage of Facebook, that kind of thing, see if it correlated to any kind of instability, and it just didn't seem to hold up. It didn't really meet the standard of like statistical significance. Yep, we had uh, internet access, mobile cellular penetration. That's a mouthful. No pun intended. Twitter, Facebook, and they also listed uh, Al Jazeera, which is just a state-run propaganda outlet out of Qatar. Though they actually do produce some interesting stuff. But they, they broke down these very online, sort of digitally native platforms, and the correlations are just, or the coefficients, rather, are just extremely low. You know, zero... 0.027 for internet access and, and just for to sort of explain for the audience when we talked about corruption that had a 0.689 coefficient so it was massively important getting that close to one internet access was not 0.2 it was 0.02 it just it virtually didn't matter at that point that's like that's like five normies yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> an, an entire an entire eleven people were motivated by Facebook to go out in the street <laughs> while while the other, you know, thirty thousand people around them came out in the street because they saw people, you know, marching down with a flag or something. But 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 that means it's working, right? We got five normies. <laughs> or maybe, maybe even as many as eleven. <laughs> we got tweet, we got tweet harder. <laughs> And yeah, so the the conclusion real quick is, conversely, we find no evidence whatsoever that such ballyhooed factors as mobile cellular connectivity or Facebook and Twitter penetration correlate higher levels of unrest. Results for population pressure that other most likely of suspects are equally lackluster. It is interesting there are the measures of economic hardship, unemployment, and income inequality almost never seem to correlate with higher levels of unrest, which I know that's more of like a, a sort of a libtarded assumption to make is the income inequality means that the peasants are going to overthrow their rich overlords. Yes, they they think that the this is sort of one of the last working class holdovers of the modern left is that income inequality is going to lead to people storming uh storming Beverly Hills or something. Mm. Yep. Yep, these other relationships just too weak. Like, okay, and, uh, there's a little bit, but not enough to really make it worth mentioning. And just to finish the, the the paragraph there, it reads, finally, it should be noted that, technically speaking, a number of other factors, GDP per capita, Al Jazeera penetration, and maybe even internet access, demonstrate or might appear to demonstrate a significantly, a statistically significant relationship with levels of unrest. However, in these cases, the strength of the relationship is so weak that we hesitate to list them as important causal factors. So, so yeah. Even, what do you think yeah. we're doing here? Trying to sell you blood pressure medication? Yeah, exactly. Right. Trying to list that. <laughs> they were act, the, the the authors of the piece were principled enough to say that even if they got a result that confirmed with their bias that it was so weak that they just can't, they can't put it forward in a serious manner. Whereas, uh, you know, I think about, I think about modern internet discourse. If you, if you got a positive result, no matter how weak you'd be posting it on Twitter, that's posting it anecdote. on Telegram. That's an anecdote. And that proves that I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Gotta love, gotta I love the anecdotes, anecdote. right? I have red pilled at least one normie. Of all the variables we tested, only corruption 
correlates with levels of unrest to a degree that is both significant and that is both significant and statistically significant. So corruption really seems to be the key to getting a population riled up. Not internet usage, not hot takes, not even diversity. Diversity here is listed as a positive contributor, but it's 0.048, which is <laughs> a really small factor. Yeah, that that was somewhat surprising to me too, because I thought there would have been a bit more of a correlation there, but I think apparently not. I think important for this context, though, is that we're talking about Arab states, and while they do have like petty tribal ethnic differences, they are almost all Muslims, and they do almost all look exactly alike. They do almost all speak the same language, so we're not really talking about what I think you or I would consider diversity. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, our, our version of diversity is a little bit different. Yeah, we're, we're not talking about going into Baltimore or Richmond or D.C. <laughs> now, the, other, the other article, I think you found this one. I also, this is the first one I saw on the topic that got me interested in it, was the social media myth about the Arab Spring. Oh, yeah, and, the Al Jazeera piece, yeah. Yeah, because there's a there's a piece that kind of goes to what I was talking about about how the government gets control of this stuff. Uh, the dangerous failure of content moderation is the heading, and there's a paragraph down here saying, despite posing as a force for progress and development, big tech was collaborating with repressive governments in the Middle East and North Africa even before the Arab Spring started. For example, in 2011, U.S. embassy cables published by WikiLeaks revealed that in 2006, Microsoft had agreed to train law enforcement officers in IT. In exchange for President Zine El Abedin Ben Ali's government going back on its decision to use open source software. Oh yeah, that was he was the president of Tunisia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So long before anybody signed on to Twitter and got their Facebook account and started posting about doing revolutions, that territory was effectively already controlled. It was already taken over. The government already had their hooks into it. Indeed, like, they they go. They go on to say, instead of protecting free speech against government censorship efforts, social media platform platforms suspended and removed thousands of accounts of political dissidents in Tunisia, Palestine, Egypt, Syria, and elsewhere. These platforms, I mean, with the data we've just sort of gone over, and this information about how these companies were already deeply embedded with the state, it's just not credible to think that angry posting on the internet is what motivated people to get into the street and attempt to overthrow entire governments. In fact, I think this was the article that pointed out the government was using, they were using social media to organize sort of like the counter-revolutionary movements, which we've seen that domestically in the United States. That's what happens with Antifa. If you organize online, your stuff will be algorithmically punished uh, you'll get banned, you'll get your accounts taken down, your reach will be restricted. Meanwhile, with Antifa, it seems to be quite the opposite a lot of the time. And they're they're allowed to use those platforms to get you fired from your job and stalk you and get you in all kinds of trouble. They're they're allowed to ha- they're allowed to I remember seeing not long ago that there was an Antifa website that was allowed to advertise not they sell knives and they're allowed to put that on Twitter yeah, and Facebook. I mean, we could never, not that we would ever want to, but we, not in a million years could a right-winger get away with that. Well, I think that just kind of demonstrates that entire space is just hostile towards dissidents. The space itself is tainted. It's bad. It, the game is rigged. <laughs> You're not Yes, but, but Alex, the if, system. <laughs> if my post has 5,000 views, surely right. I've converted some normies. You know, look, look at my retweets over here. <laughs> All these likes. Get my reach, I'm famous, put on a gimp mask, and talked about the Jewish question. It's it's so fascinating to actually pull this apart because I and I think we're coming from the same direction. We've always had sort of a gut instinct that screaming into the void on the internet doesn't accomplish a whole lot unless that results in real world activity, which of course we've both been involved in to some extent. And, yeah, and of course, it's kind of one of the problems, too, is if you, if you just engage with people on the Internet, that doesn't give you the skill set of working in real life where you have to actually have more organic relationships with people. You have to, on some level, be friends with the people that you're working with. 
You have to be sociable. Yeah. You got you, you you can't be an, an asocial <laughs> autist on the freaking internet. You can't communicate with just blocks of text. Oh gosh. Oh yeah. You believe me, I, I when I started actually running a Telegram channel and a Substack, I had no idea how how like the Spurg posting memes were so true because I've gotten some real interesting emails. Yeah, I mean, it's people that, that just, just they got energy. Pe- people just would not na- people would never say these things to me in real life. <laughs> like, hey, well, that's, interact- that's, that's the kind of the other aspect is with these ghettos, it ends up turning into kind of a break on anything because it, you, you, it's just you people, which tends to be young white males who have this kind of energy and they just end up burning it all on argumentation with each other, uh, personality conflicts, that kind of thing. It, it, it's just a bunch of restless energy going nowhere. Indeed. And I, you know, we, I keep going back to this corruption thing and I'm thinking about my old age, my own age rather, which I've never hid, which is 24. I've never, I'm trying to figure out a diplomatic way to put it, but sort of the deterioration of the American state has just been a fact of life my entire life that I, I'm never surprised when people my age, particularly other young men, are just complete nihilists. I have so many friends who aren't particularly political. They really dislike how things are, but they're not at all motivated to do anything. They're, they're just complete nihilists. And I don't know, they use social media all day, and I don't know how we, you know, we overcome things like that, and figuring the solution out to that's not the point of the show, but it really does feed into the problem. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's been a fact of, of life. I'm 40 years old, and as long as I've been alive, the state has been not in the best conditions. I mean, I've every <laughs> place I've ever lived, the roads. Oh, no, you worked were, in healthcare. You've seen it. Yeah, right. Well, the roads were always just destroyed ever since I was a child. I remember uh, they repaved the road in front of my house whenever I was like 10 years old. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Wow, they did an infrastructure, <laughs> and then ever ever since then, it's like, what what infrastructure? <laughs> oh, I mean, the the place has been in decline long. I mean, this has been a long time coming. It's not like it's new that the the country has declined in terms of, of that kind of thing, like infrastructure, just general sense of well being in the country. I, I would I would say that, you know, probably the last fifty sixty years at this point. Well, it's it's interesting you. You bring that up because one of my final points is, uh, again, from a Pew piece written by Brown, Guskin, and Mitchell, where they go further into picking apart sort of the Internet ghetto. And it's by the U.S. Institute of – it was a report, rather, by the U.S. Institute of Peace, which has a bit of an Orwellian name, that people who are active on the Internet are much less likely – to respond to any call to action because their their activity on the internet they're equating with real world engagement so they refuse a call to action for real world engagement and the other thing is you get a certain demographic because i noticed uh, maybe it was the same piece maybe it was different when they were discussing the fact that you college students college educated people they tend to be more engaged with this kind of thing like college educated people particularly which that doesn't necessarily constitute a revolutionary movement like being college educated it probably means you're in a strata of society where it would be more dangerous for you to do that kind of thing oh yeah because you you'd risk falling out of favor with the regime right Right, which we see all the time in the United States. Oh yeah, what is Mike uses the term the luxury belief system, right? If you're if you're taking the risk of going against even one of these luxury beliefs, you run the risk of losing your job, no longer being able to put your children through the private school where they're not exposed to as much of the sort of degenerate stuff that goes on in schools nowadays. You know, it, you just can't risk that sort of counter-revolutionary statement making. Yeah. The so the other thing, uh, 
Which piece is this? Is this the same one? Social Media and Activist Toolkit? Yeah, Social Media and Activist Toolkit. This is from that piece. In Bahrain, for example, activists have used closed direct messaging and chats instead of public walls and profiles on Twitter and Facebook to communicate. So that to me is, is interesting. And this is something I've seen too in our, in our own circles. But essentially, one of the adaptations you have to make if you do actual activism and if you're an actual dissident is you can't use social media for its ostensible purpose, which is to just broadcast stuff everywhere and you instead, can't organize on it yeah instead you have to do it in a clandestine fashion where it's not visible <laughs> like you might be able to use some of the architecture like having private chats and things like that but you can't actually use it to just do a big broadcast and big call to action well yeah you 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 can't organize a you can't organize an event by publicly tweeting with people you have to do it on proton mail you have to do it yeah. on Telegram. I mean, better yet, you have to do it in person, which is an, which just sort of shatters the idea that political revolution kind of organically arises from hundreds of thousands of random interactions on the internet because there's no organizational capacity there. That is a point I think I have made millions of times is that if you are trying to do organization and recruitment on the internet and you don't have a structure in place to put those people, it's a waste of time. Like me convincing you of an ideology is useless if there's nowhere for you to go. Cause now you're just carrying around this knowledge inside your head and you're not able to use it on anything. Well, I mentioned to you, we were texting back and forth and planning the show. And I mentioned to you and Mike, <laughs> Mike used this the other day on TDS and it made me smile. The, I call it the, I call it the racism equation, which is, okay, so you, you've ended up in our politics. Good for you, meaning you believe roughly the same things we believe. But then people go about life doing a normal activity while being a racist. And then they think that may, that equals politics. Golfing while racist. Golfing while racist. Right, right. Going, going to the gym while racist, by the way. You should go to the gym. I'm not saying don't go to the gym. Even I do hate golf, though. Don't bother golfing. Sorry, I know you're Scottish. Uh, probably, we're probably not friends right, anymore. Right. Well, just, just golfing. Don't do that either. That's just gay. <laughs> <laughs> Point is, do, by, by all means, do these, these good-for-you activities, but doing it while racist, it, it's not a... You're not doing politics. Feeding... Ch this is the other one, like homestead feeding chickens while racist. You know, that that's not political. I'm not saying go out and, and hold up a sign and, you know, immediately dox yourself, but don't, people need to not fall into the narrative that just because they have been politicized by the internet, that it, it's made political activity happen. So the, the thing that I think people have bought into as well is the shifting of the Overton window, which is the idea that you kind of change public opinion. You do this incrementally, like you gradually you red pill the normies over time and public opinion shifts. But that's not actually how things work in the real world. And I know we have talked about this privately before about how everything is actually just the result of policy. Policy is implemented oftentimes with uh, no approval from the people that are going to be affected by it. They ramrod it down everyone's throat, and then they will use propaganda to convince you that, oh, no, you really wanted this the entire time. No, everybody thinks this is what we should do. Like the, the government and the elites, they don't, they don't do opinion polling and then just follow whatever it is that the public wants them to do. Hopefully no one thinks that's how elites function anyway, but they have a direction they want to go in and they drag the rest of the country with them. And then they tell you that, well, everyone agrees that this is what we should be doing. That's how the Overton window actually works. The Overton window is in a synagogue and you're not allowed <laughs> inside. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, our, if I remember the discussion correctly, it was one of our, we used to have hour long discussions on sort of rural living and the, and the, how the death of a rural society seems to be a harbinger for the death of a nation, which is something we'll really get into in a later episode. But on the policy front, a lot of people sort of buy into this idea that cities and suburbs got extremely big because that American dream is how people wanted to live. Right. That's what people just, they wanted that. People were 
people were crying out for Levittown before <laughs> Levitt, before Levittown was built. But there's not there's not evidence that that is the case. And of course, you know, we'll deconstruct this at a later date. But we're getting the same thing with the Overton window argument, which is people are crying out for for some sort of change in the in the narrative discussion. But they're not really the, the narrative discussion is much more hemmed in by the the Internet policy of states and corporations than by anyone, you know, sort of pushing at it. Right. And they, they largely dictate what conversation you're allowed to ha have, what the parameters are, all of that. That's that's effectively dictated by them. There's only a, and I know in my own experience, having done a little bit of my own research into dissident movements and the amount of people involved in them. Uh, we we are quite tiny. We we have a very microscopic group of people involved here. Uh, the Audubon Society could kick all of our asses if they wanted to. Uh, so we're <laughs> the the Overton window for us to move it is kind of a, a highly unrealistic goal. I would say highly unrealistic. Uh, effectively, I would, yeah. <laughs> I would put it another way in saying that our core group of activists is very small. And the core group of people who directly interact with our political structures is fairly small, even though being somewhat privileged to the numbers, I have seen it grow. The main problem is every other, you don't, we can't effectively, and this is where the NJP has an advantage, right? Because it's not, and patriotic alternative and in these other organizations, they have escaped the policy environment by going into the real world, right? Mm -hmm. You can't you can't build something, in this case on the internet, where the policy environment is completely antithetic antithetical to it. At most, what you're going to do is put a graphic or a message in front of someone who might read it, but that won't grow an organization, the organization has to exist outside of the curated policy environment. And the real world, like it or not, is a much less curated environment for discussion and building things than the internet is. The internet right. is not the Wild West anymore. No, it has been for a very long time. And even back when it was more of the Wild West, uh, it really didn't have, because I know somebody was asking this question, like, well, wasn't it easier back when it was still, you know, kind of the Wild West? And I don't think that was true either, because the people using the Internet at that time, uh, they were not dissidents. They, for the most part, they were, yet again, the, the types of people involved, the, the demographics are important. Early Internet tended to be nerds, tended to be people who were really into tech, not necessarily the kinds of people who were going to try to overthrow a government. So I don't, I don't know that the internet has ever really showed some promise to do that. And it's also sort of a utopian vision the whole time anyway of like, oh, the internet's going to revolutionize everything and make all these things possible. And of course, it didn't, didn't actually. Yes, I'm, deep, I'm deeply skeptical of uh, utopian claims about the internet and uh, blockchain and anything like that. I, I, have yeah. a, I have a reflexive skepticism to that, those sort of narratives. Yeah, yeah, because this has been a thing for as long as I've use the internet these utopian ideas of how it's transformative it is and it's like yeah but people who have more resources than you are going to use it for a transformative effect all right you're not going to like it <laughs> indeed same, same thing with ai what oh, are we gosh, using yeah. what are we using ai for oh that's right to patrol people on the internet to make sure you don't use the the wrong words in your yahoo comment <laughs> ai yeah it does two things either we use it for policing or we use it to distract people with even larger anime titties. I've seen, yeah, right. you know, that's, that's, uh, I've seen some, some really horrible shit on, on teller. Like, Oh my, people are, AI is not transforming the way that men in particular use the internet. I can tell you that. I think the only useful thing I've seen so far with AI is you can upscale photos with it. Sort of. Your brain's still going to tell you something's off with the photo, but I, yeah, I've, uh, I've, it's getting uh, there. I will see. Uh, there's a, a particular chat I'm in with a guy who's really, he'll never listen to the show, who is really concerned about AI and he always reposts AI stuff and said, you know, what do people can barely, people can't tell the difference. And I'll look at it for two seconds. Like, I, I can tell you right now that that is not real. 
it's i mean it, it'll probably get there eventually oh but i'm sure still, i'm sure it's but... still got the uncanny valley effect even when you're trying to use it for legitimate purposes like let's say blowing an image out to 1000 by 1000 pixels you can still look at the photo and be like eh, something's not quite right indeed well do we have any final points before we wrap up this first show I'll be really honest with the listeners. We have a hard hour cutoff, everybody. <laughs> Thank God. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't. It's, this, uh, it's the part where I, t- I tag in Mike and we go on for another two hours. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll step out for the chairman, and you two can go on about how much you hate we can, Midwest. No, we can both step out and see how long it takes him to figure out he's talking to himself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess. I guess the final thought would be like, I'm not. I don't think anybody's trying to get. To, to do any black pilling here god forbid i just think that you should be realistic about how these systems work and plan accordingly yes don't be aware of what you're working with don't believe that engagement rates on twitter are go are axiomatically translating into change I think that's the yeah. point is is that the internet does not axiomatically translate into change and if you want something that translates into change, like forcing a state government and a Congress member to respond when they won't provide a small town with aid, that that involves needing to get up there and get in someone's face like Stryker did with that congressman in Ohio whose name I can't remember. Yeah, so, that, that was fantastic. That was, in, yes, was if you if you observe that interaction, he gave another constituent who was obviously pissed off. He, he gave them the opportunity to chime in and gave them uh, an opportunity to follow a direction. That kind of stuff is actually useful. And like I was saying, like there's there seems to be a decreasing amount of competition in that arena because of the pacifying effect of social media and Internet, television, all of these things. The your 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 competition is staying home which means that even though you might be highly outnumbered in terms of the size of your organization, disproportionately you do have advantage because those other organizations aren't doing anything. You also have an advantage, and again, this is where NJP has an advantage, if the things you're talking about are things that a significant amount of normal people, if not care about directly, can sympathize with. I was just the other day, I stumbled across a political group of like radical orthodox christian conservative they were like trying to start a political party and they're like radical orthodox christians and and they meet up in real life and they have all these pictures and stuff but and they've been around for like two years they have no engagement right because they met each other completely on the internet in a completely niche space and it led them to believe that a significant amount of people care about something that they don't care about. People care about getting aid to a town after it was blown up by a train. They do not care about abstract arguing about the finer points of orthodox theology. Well, first century Christian teachings. <laughs> you have been duped by the internet if you think that that is what people care about. <laughs> yeah. You mean the, the the people in my town? They don't they don't care about those theological debates. Wow. Yeah. yeah anyway, uh... <laughs> I think we got a, a good solid hour in here. I like Indeed, the yeah. idea of the cutoff. Uh, Sven is also a big proponent of the cutoff. Oh, that's good. That's good. Maybe we should we should get him to do some sort of this is the end of the show uh, voiceover in the future. <laughs> We should, we should, and just have like an alarm start going off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the best part would be to be in the middle of a really complicated and interesting point and just be like, ah, that's it. Yes, yes. We, we, something with contempt for the audience. And join us again next week. <laughs> yeah. All right, next time we will have forgotten what we were talking about. Be on a different one. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll ramble into ruralism again. That that's going to be a theme of this show. Well, all right, all right, everyone. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thank you so much for agreeing to be. The co-host, I'm I'm really excited to see where this is going to go. If you do want to make a difference in the real world, nationaljusticeparty.com slash contact us. Get vetted, guys. 